Hebrews chapter 10, we begin with verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days, in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 36. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I'd like to call your attention in particular to the words in verse 35, where, and and bear with me if I refer to Paul as the author, if you want to argue with me about that, we can take that up on another occasion. But where the author writes, verse 35, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Cast not away your confidence. These verses in Hebrews 10 show us that yesterday's victories for the Christian do not end the battle. We're learning that, aren't we, as we go through Pilgrim's Progress in Sunday School He's battled Apollyon. He's gone through the valley of the shadow of death. One battle leads to another, and it seems like uh, each battle becomes a greater challenge. And so we're taught yesterday's victories for the Christian do not end the battle. We're tempted, I suppose, to think that that would be nice if that could be the case. If I could say that because I resisted and overcame temptation yesterday, I need not fear temptation today or tomorrow, well, that would enable me then to put off my armor and it would relieve me from having to be watchful. But this epistle clearly indicates to us that there's no such thing as the battle ending for the Christian, certainly not on this side of the river, so to speak. The spiritual battle for the Christian is ongoing. And in the case of the Hebrew Christians to whom this epistle is addressed, the battle had become long and wearisome, and the battle was at times fierce, and the temptation was strong to simply give up on Christ and go back to the easy days of apostate Judaism. Notice in verse 32 that when Paul calls on them to call to remembrance the former days, he makes reference in that same text to the great fight of afflictions that they endured. Every indication was that they had done well initially in their spiritual warfare. They took joyfully the spoiling of their goods, it says in verse 34. 
Stop and think about that for a moment. Taking joyfully the spoiling of your goods. That means they were robbed, basically. That what they owned, they were either chased away from it, or they had it taken from them. And they could be victimized by such treatment, and yet still be joyful. What a good start on your walk with the Lord. They had compassion on Paul himself, who was engaged in the same warfare. They were willing companions to others who suffered the same things that they suffered. Those were the former days. But as these verses, and indeed this entire epistle indicates, there were reproaches and afflictions applied to their present-day situation as well. This is why I say that yesterday's victories don't end the battle. And so Paul finds it necessary to add the exhortation to the many exhortations he's already given them that they should, in the words of verse 35, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. This marks the second time in this epistle that we see that word confidence. We also see it back in chapter 3 and verse 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now the same word occurs in the Greek earlier in this 10th chapter. In verse 19 we read, Having therefore, brethren, boldness. There's the same word. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And so there is a form of confidence or boldness that we must hold on to and that we must not cast away. That's the confidence that is found in Christ himself, grounded in the blood atonement of Christ. Boldness or confidence by the blood. There is a form of confidence, of course, that we do well to throw away. Self-confidence has no place in the Christian's life where spiritual things are concerned. Self-confidence is the very opposite of being poor in spirit, which is the honest recognition of our complete dependence upon Christ. Our confidence, rather, is in the successful accomplishment of Christ's atoning death. In that we should be bold and confident. This is why it's so important that we endeavor to deepen our understanding of the atonement of Christ. The more informed we are regarding Christ's atonement, the greater our confidence will be in that atonement. This is why we're called upon to remember the broken body and shed blood of our Savior in order that our confidence may be strong and stronger in Christ. When you lose confidence in something, then that something becomes, well, pretty well useless. 
when a car continually breaks down and needs more and more repair work done to it, then eventually you lose confidence in the car and you'll cast it away by either having it junked or by selling it, if you're ruthless enough to do that, or by trying to trade it in for something better. The Hebrews, as amazing as it may seem to us today, were losing confidence in the blood of Christ and were on the brink of discarding Christianity altogether. That's why the author of this epistle took time to expound the value of that blood, emphasizing, as he does, that the blood of Christ is a once-for-all sacrifice because unlike all those animal sacrifices, Christ's blood contained the virtue of his life, which was more than sufficient to wash away our sins. The life of the flesh is in the blood. We're told that in Leviticus 17.11, and that tells you then something about the value and virtue of Christ's life his life in his blood, infinite in value. And so I want to draw your attention to this exhortation today to cast not away your confidence. If I could rephrase the verse so that I can express it positively, I would state it like this. We must keep our confidence. We must keep our confidence. And in the moments that remain in preparation for remembering the Lord, I want to call your attention to a number of things in these verses that will instruct us how to keep and even increase our confidence. Consider with me, first of all, we keep our confidence by remembering former days. We keep our confidence by remembering former days. But call to remembrance the former days, the author writes in verse 32. There is a sense, of course, in which our time around the Lord's table calls us to former days. Not the former days within our own lives, but the former days of history in which Christ gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. Remember the former days of history. Remember that it is true history. We're not reading made-up stories. We're not following cunningly devised fables. This is historically true, that Christ did indeed give his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, For consider him, Christ, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So this is a call to former days, to remember, to remember former days. In the immediate context of our text, however, I believe the author is calling on his readers to remember the former days of their own lives in which they endured a great fight of afflictions. There was a day, you see, when those Hebrew Christians spiritually met Christ. 
Can you call to remembrance a former day in which that can be said of you? I met Jesus Christ. Like Paul, who met him on the Damascus Road on that day when he shone in his glory and Paul was knocked to the ground off his high horse, lost his sight for three days, he met with the risen Christ. I wonder, have you, spiritually speaking, I'm not saying that your experience would be literal the way Paul's was, but spiritually speaking, can it be said of you the same thing? I've met Christ. In the case of these Hebrew Christians, the gospel came to their hearts with power, and they were illuminated to use the word from our text. They were illuminated. Paul refers to this illumination in his prayer for the saints at Ephesus. So we read in Ephesians 1 and verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, then underscore this next statement, the eyes of your understanding, or more literally perhaps the eyes of your heart, being enlightened. That phrase, the eyes of your understanding, like I say, may be translated the eyes of your heart, this is the kind of spiritual illumination that Paul has in mind. Not merely an intellectual illumination that takes place when the mind is informed of something, but an illumination that takes place deep in the soul and allows the recipient of that illumination to not merely know something academically, but to sense in his heart the truth and reality of it. It's a little bit, I suppose, like trying to explain to someone the pain that you would feel in your toe if you, say, had tripped and you kicked a brick, stubbed your toe and hurt it and found it to be very painful. You may try to vividly describe that pain to someone in such a way that he becomes well informed about that pain. But when he kicks a brick himself and actually feels the pain, well, now he's illuminated. Now he knows in his experience what you were talking about when you tried to describe your pain to him. This is what Paul means by illumination. The Hebrew Christians not only knew the truth of the gospel in their heads, but they sensed the absolute truth and reality of it in their hearts. Paul is calling upon them to remember their initial experience of Christ in which they were illuminated that illumination equipped them to endure their great fight of afflictions. They were unashamed to bear reproach. They willingly and desirously identified themselves with others who were bearing the same reproach. Remember, he is saying to them, in effect, 
that you found Christ to be the true and living God and a real and personal Savior. You didn't merely follow cunningly devised fables, but you met Christ. Your hearts were illuminated to the truth concerning who he is and what he's done. Paul's prayer for the saints at Ephesus teaches us quite plainly that spiritual illumination needs to be an ongoing experience of the believer. Arguably, the believers at Ephesus had been illuminated to the truth of the gospel, and yet Paul prays for them that they would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of their understanding being enlightened, that they might know the hope of their calling, and so on. They had been illuminated, and yet such is the strength of inbred sin that our hearts, I'm afraid, very quickly have the capacity to grow dull. And when our hearts grow dull, then the gospel doesn't seem to be reality so much as it seems to be mere theory. And if your religion degenerates into theory, even into orthodox theory, then you will grow weary in the battle and your compassion will grow cold and the temptation will become stronger to go the way of the world and the way of the flesh. Illumination is a constant need. And there are times when illumination can be regained by calling to remembrance other times when illumination took place. I can remember Dr. Cairns once telling us that one of the things that led to revival in Scotland many years ago was when Christians in Scotland read the accounts of earlier revivals that had taken place in their country. And by calling to mind those former days, they found their own hearts revived. I believe that the Lord's table serves the purpose of bringing this spiritual illumination to us anew and afresh. As we remember Christ and affectionately meditate on his broken body and his shed blood, we should expect that the Spirit of God will illuminate our hearts and make the love of Christ a felt reality to our souls. And when the love of Christ is a felt reality, then we will endure a great fight of afflictions and we will take with joy the spoiling of our goods if it comes to that. We'll be less in love with this world because we'll be more convinced than ever that we seek a city to come. The first thing we must do then in order to keep our confidence is to call to remembrance the former days in terms of history and in terms of your personal experience. But would you consider with me next, we keep our confidence by rightly interpreting present days. Notice what Paul writes in verse 36. 
For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Ye have need of patience, he writes. And doesn't such a statement indicate to us what was happening to the Hebrew Christians? It was not simply a matter of haphazard circumstances, but it was a matter rather of God's estimation of their needs. God discerned, decided, determined that they had need of patience. I'm reminded of Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12 when he writes, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. It would seem, wouldn't it, that Paul knew all about the high times, and the low times. He knew how to abound. There's his knowledge of how to live for and honor Christ when the tide of blessing is high. But he also knew how to be abased. I am instructed, he says. In other words, he's referring to something that didn't come naturally, but he had to be instructed to learn this. He learned how to be full and how to be hungry. Rather ironic, isn't it, that we need to learn both? We might be tempted to think that we only have to learn how to endure hardship, but learning how to be full and learning how to abound, uh, what's to learn? That ought to come naturally. We enjoy those kinds of times We don't have to be taught to enjoy those times. We only have to learn to count it all joy, as James writes, when we suffer diverse trials and temptations. Truth is, we need to be instructed in both. We need to learn how to take the high times as well as the low. How to be full and how to be hungry. How to abound and how to suffer need. And Paul had learned both. A little later in chapter 4, verse 19, in Philippians, he says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Paul, who knew how to abound and how to be abased, could make the promise to them, My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ. When we look at such a statement and consider it in the context to be abased and learning how to abound, then we are led to the conclusion that when we suffer need and when we may be hungry and abased, that is the need. Our circumstances don't simply fall out to us in random fashion, you see. God rules over all. And when we treat our circumstances in such a way as to think that they come to us randomly, then that only indicates that our view of God has been sadly reduced. 
And if the only way we can view difficult circumstances is by interpreting them as God being angry with us, then we've lost sight of the cross. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood at this point. It is true, and you do see this in this very epistle to the Hebrews, that divine chastisement is something very real and necessary for every child of God, and that it isn't pleasant. The difference, however, in God's dealings with us and in his dealings with the world is that every dealing God takes with his children is based upon his love for his children. Even the harsh providences that come your way, they're directed by God from a father who loves you, not from a judge who is angry with you. And the place we must go to again and again to be reminded of the truth of God's love is the cross of Christ. This is why we're called to the Lord's table, so that we may remind ourselves of Christ's love. His love was not demonstrated to us by his ordering all things for our comfort and ease. The flesh may desire that, And when we harbor doubts about God's love, it is sometimes because we're misreading his providence. But our call to the Lord's table is a call to the remembrance that Christ has manifested his love toward us in a way that transcends all circumstances. He's manifested his love to us by giving his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. And when we're brought to the remembrance of this love, which surpasses any other manifestation of love that divine wisdom could conceive, then we'll be able to affirm that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ whether it be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, Romans 8.35. So the next time you find yourselves grumbling or being tempted to grumble under God's providential dealings with you, remember to interpret your present circumstances in the light of God's love and be able to see regarding your own life what Paul says of the Hebrews, verse 36, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Such is Christ's love for his followers that he ministers to them providentially in accordance with his view of their needs. And when you're tempted to doubt that, then you need to reconsider the words of John 15 and verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So we keep our confidence by remembering former days. We keep our confidence by rightly interpreting present days. Consider with me finally, you can probably tell where I'm going to go with this. We keep our confidence by anticipating future days. 
We keep our confidence by anticipating future days. Note again verse 35. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Now, our confidence is our faith. Not the activity of faith so much as the object of our faith. Our confidence, in other words, is to be found in Christ. We're confident in Him. And the reward we anticipate from Christ is the reward of sins not only being forgiven, but being washed away in His precious blood to be remembered against us no more. It's the reward of being openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. It's the reward of Christ's righteousness being given to us. It's the reward of being commended by Christ and received by Christ. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Christ says in Matthew 25 and verse 31. Oh, how humbling we'll find those words when we hear them. Because we know that in so many ways we haven't been faithful. In many ways we failed. Rather interesting to note in Matthew 25 that those that are greatly rewarded by Christ, they answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? Those that end up condemned are the ones that in desperation try to plead their works. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? The justified ones are the ones that ask, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? It's no wonder then that Christ says to his followers, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5, 12. Oh, our reward will indeed be great. We won't harbor the notion that we deserve anything or that we've done anything of consequence, and yet we'll hear the Lord's commendation and invitation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Oh, may that be the thing that governs us in our present days, looking ahead to future days. Paul calls it a great recompense of reward. Great is your reward. Great your recompense of reward. The reward is great because it stands in contrast to what we deserve. And the reward is great because our Savior is great and has accomplished by His broken body and shed blood so great salvation. One of the scenes in the book of Revelation that I find striking is that scene in chapter 4 where the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne of Christ. If those 24 elders could be viewed as representatives for all Christians throughout the ages, and I think that's a good interpretation, 
If we view those elders that way, we can view them doing what will be easy for every Christian to do. We cast our crowns before the throne of Christ and acknowledge his worthiness to receive praise and glory and honor. After all, he's the one that has earned the crown. Our crowns come to us by virtue of the crown that he has earned. There is, though, another side to the coin, and it's the dark side of hell. To those that think the circumstances of this life make it too hard to serve and follow Christ, there will be no reward for them. They will receive what they deserve and will learn to their everlasting dread the truth of verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Far better, therefore, to keep your confidence rather than to cast it away. Call to remembrance the former days. Remember the former days in history when Christ died a cruel death on Calvary's cross and remember the former days in your own experience when you were enlightened to the truth of his suffering and death. The joy of the Lord so ruled your heart that you were willing to endure just about anything. You were willing to be made a gazing stock and to bear reproach if that's what the Lord wanted. Oh, may the remembrance of former days encourage you then to persevere in present and future days. Remember to interpret the providence of God in the light of the cross of Christ. Make that the lens through which you see everything in life, the cross work of Christ. All things do work together for good to them that love God. That does not mean that all things will be easy or that you'll even necessarily understand all things. But by keeping your focus on the broken body and shed blood of Christ, you'll gain the liberty to interpret every circumstance of life in the context of God's love for you. And finally, remember the reward. Remember the joy that will fill and thrill your soul when you discover that you are truly justified and your sins are forgiven. Remember what is said back in chapter 6 and verse 10. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have shown toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. May our time around the communion table this morning, therefore, serve the purpose of strengthening our confidence in Christ so that we'll resist any and every temptation to cast away such confidence that brings so great recompense of reward. Let's close then in prayer before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee that Christ is worthy of our confidence. O Lord, our confidence couldn't be 
put in a stronger place than in Christ himself, who was able to endure the very wrath of God in order to propitiate thy burning anger against poor, vile, guilty sinners such as we. May our confidence grow. May our faith increase. May our love to thee grow, dear Lord, as we remember the former days, the former days in history when Christ really did come and lived a perfect life and died an atoning death. May we recall the former days in our own experience when you commanded the light to shine in our hearts and we gained a saving interest in Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that as we partake of these elements now, that our confidence in Christ would grow stronger and that thou wilt illuminate our hearts anew and afresh to the truth and the blessings that are ours in Christ. So, Lord, draw near to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.